<laughs> Last night, she goes, Dad, what's your sermon about? Because I'm going to be a Bible explorer. <laughs> and so I gave it to her in a nutshell before we uh, got distracted with other things. She never followed up and said, well, Dad, you, you forgot your third point, and uh, she just went right on her merry way. Well, again, uh, let me say uh, greetings to you. My name is Josh Jones, one of the pastors here, and I want to express my appreciation for Pastor Pat. did a great job these past two weeks uh, sharing God's Word, and uh, as our faith family, we're used to this, but in case you're our guest, I just want you to know how good it is for your soul to listen to different preachers share God's Word. You say, what, that's good for my soul? Yes, that is good for your soul. Let me connect the dots with you. It's one of our values at FCBC. Here it is. Faith family, we want to rejoice in the preaching of the word, not the preacher of the word. You get the difference? Right? And so we want to rejoice that the word was preached, not in who preached it. Right? That's really important for us, that it's about the word of God not the preacher of the word. And that's so important because ultimately we want to know that what happened in our lives as we attended Faith Community Bible Church was a work of God and not a work of man. So we want to know that we want to know that God did first an internal work that could be for eternity, not that man did an external work that might have gotten you excited and convicted and squirmy and, yeah, I'm going to go out there and do something. But then it was only temporary. It was short-lived. It sprung up and then it faded, a flash in the pan kind of thing. That's relevant for everyone here. So if you're not paying attention, like that applies to you because you're here. You're at a church gathering. And here's the question. How do you know if what you're experiencing is an experience of God that moved you or the entertainment of man that manipulated you? It's a big question, right? One that has stuck with me for a long time. I grew up in a, if you don't know me, I grew up in a Christian school from 6th grade through 12th grade. That was new to me because I was not church. I was sent there because they needed an after-school program. My parents worked in D.C., and so I just needed a place to babysit me, and Christian schools provided free aftercare. That's how I got God used his little plan to use aftercare to get me to hear the gospel. But it was a whole new culture. Christian school, chapel messages three times a week, and Christian camps. That's a whole culture of things to just kind of soak in and experience and how they do things. So I went to a Christian camp, and uh, maybe this was your experience, or you've heard of these. You go there, and I thought a Christian camp was all about fun. They have zip lines, they have water slides, basketball tournaments, soccer tournaments, all kinds of crazy food. And I thought that was what it was all about. You know, it's a summer camp. Camp fun. You know what they do? They sneak in a morning message and an evening message. I was like, whoa. I mean, they said bring your Bible, but I thought that was just, you know, something to kind of, you know, just have. You know, don't leave home without it, you know, like, like your cell phone. Okay, but no, this was like we're going to use it. And so I remember going there and making it through the first message, thinking about the water slide, the zip line, and my friends getting on the basketball tourney and winning it. You know, that was a big deal for us. And then the evening message, I just thought about milkshake mayhem to follow. I mean, I'm going to get that vanilla one this time and get the chocolate one the next time. And then somewhere in there, I just kind of made it through there. Well, a couple in three days of that, okay, exhaustion from, you know, competing and then sleep deprivation from being in a room full of guys you know and how all that kind of fun is and then you get to the third night 
And the preacher gives the salvation message. And he calls you to make a choice. And it seems pretty simple. He says this, with every head bowed, every eye closed, you know, say, this, say this prayer. It's called the sinner's prayer, in case you don't know it. And that's supposed to get you into, into heaven. You, you say this prayer, and you, you mean it. Well, then afterwards, he says, with every eye bowed, or every eye closed and every head bowed, raise your hand if you said that prayer. So I was an honest kid, and so I put my hand up for the first time, right? It, it took a lot of guts, did that. Well, I didn't know what was going to follow, which was, if you've raised your hand here in private with every head bowed and eye closed, I did not know that my youth leaders were told to peek. <laughs> they were allowed to look. So you were not going to get out of this alive, being, you know, kind of incognito. So then you'd say, well, if you raised your hand, go ahead and stand up, walk past your friends, and come forward. Now, until that point, I did not realize how crammed in, like sardines, we were. And to pass your friend, you had to, like, basically tell them, yes, it's me, yes, it's me, it's me, move over, I'm going, I'm going, you know. And all of a sudden, my reputation began to care more than my salvation. I was, hand went down, knees started knocking, started sweating. And that's when the preacher called your bluff. Those that are ashamed of me, verse Luke 9, 26. Those on the last day I will be ashamed of. And you're like, ooh, <laughs> all right, I'll move. You know, and so you move, you walk past everybody, you nudge everybody, you get up front, and you're standing there, and you're, you're in a cold sweat. Like, I did not know this is how this was going to go. And then it goes from salvation message to, and if you're here and you're already a Christian, you want to rededicate your life, your know, eyes were already open then, you're already visible, come on up, grab a stick, throw it in the fire. I kind of looked incredulously at the preacher saying, what? Like, there was an option two? I could have not had to pass everybody, do the whole secret thing. I could have come up here and just want to stick on the fire? Like, oh, that is just not right. Now, that was my experience. A whole new culture did not know about rededication option door number two. <laughs> Definitely would have taken that one. And decisionism was kind of year after year. And I always kind of wondered, decisionism, make a decision now. Why does God only save on night three after you're exhaust, exhausted and tired at a Christian camp? Why doesn't he save in the boring chapel messages at 930 at Evangel Christian School on Dale Boulevard in Dale City, Virginia? Why did I come forward, throw a stick in the fire the next year? Because I learned that one. <laughs> Only to go home and for many of us to live the same lives. And to have many kids walk away saying, yeah, I did that when I was a kid. And as a pastor, you don't get past that. I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you that at some points in my life I thought when I was the associate pastor... Man, when I become the senior pastor and I get to do this and preach this way and organize this way, then God's going to work. I confess that. I, I hated it growing up because I saw the technique to it. 
I saw the inconsistency, and I wondered if any of us knew whether are we a Christian just because we say we are? Are we a Christian because we walked an aisle, threw a stick in the fire, sat back down? How do I know that it was a work of God, not a work of man's manipulation? I mean, I got told just last week by a friend there's a lot in common between a preacher and a used car salesman. That was that was good to hear. <laughs> Fortunately, it's from a friend. Um, still. <laughs> Friends like that, who needs enemies? <laughs> um, but I think we all want to know, how do we know that what we're experiencing is truly a work of God where he moved us for the entertainment of man in which we got manipulated, and we want you to know that here. And so we're going to turn to God's word, and we're in 1 Kings 18, which is page 299 in your pew Bible. That's 299 in your pew Bible. You will be helped if you open to that and, and stick with it. It's a long chapter. We're not going to read the whole thing and then talk about it. We're going to read it and talk about it as we go, okay? And let's just pray one more time. God, I just want to confess that I find no comfort and no strength in my preparation. Yes, I've been trained to be a student of your word. A lot of nice ways of organizing material and thinking through logically of how this part fits in the, in the whole arc storyline of the Bible. I thank you, Lord, for that education, but it's not what I want to trust in. God, I also thank you for 13 years, 14 years of being in the same church. A lot of friends, a lot of investment. And I could lean heavy into the emotional capital I have with people here. And I truly believe that I'll walk out of here alive and that most people will accept me, say nice things to me at the door. But that's not where my hope is. It's not where we want our hope to be. God, we want to just say at the beginning again that if you don't move in our life and do a work of God, we will not move. We'll come here and we'll listen and we'll make it through and we'll go on, but we won't be changed. And we want to know that you transformed our hearts and that it was a work of God, not just a work of man, that has a veneer. We want to truly worship you and experience you to know without a shadow of a doubt that you are God, that you are God alone, and that you drew us to yourself so that we can walk this Christian faith with perseverance, knowing that it wasn't our will, it wasn't our fortitude, it wasn't our determination that got us all the way to heaven. It was your drawing and your keeping and your sustaining and your loving so that you can get all the glory. In Christ's name, amen. So the good news at 1 Kings 18, as good Bible students, we want God's word to speak, not just the preacher, right? We want God's word to speak. And the good news about this passage in chapter 18 is that God's word tells us what the purpose of the story is. When you want to hear God's word preached, and you want to make sure you're understanding God's word, you want to read God's Bible to make sure you know what the purpose of the text was about. And the good news is we know what it is because we heard about it in 1 Kings 18, the big numbers of the chapters, the small numbers of the verses. 1 Kings 18, verse 37. Flip there again. We already read it once, but this is the linchpin of the passage. It gives us our, our sign to put us on our journey. It's a signpost directing us what this text means. Here it is, verse 37. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. This people may know that you, that's the emphasis, right? That they would know what? That you, one thing, are God. That you, O Lord, are God. Second thing, and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah, in this very familiar story that we all know from Sunday school, right? Many of us know, he's going to pray for fire. 
And fire's going to come down from heaven. Okay, that, that, that's the spoiler alert. But he wants you to be very clear on why he is praying for fire. He wants to be quite clear that he is praying for something far more important than fire from heaven. He is praying that you, right, all of us, know that the Lord, he is God, and that it is the God of the Bible who turns hearts back. So before this restoration of Israel happens, he wants the people of Israel to know that it was not due to man, but it was due to God. And you can see that if you just flip back to chapter 18, verse 1, the small number there, verse 1, we see in verse 1 that after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, the third year of the drought, saying, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Nothing has changed in the people of Israel. They are still corrupt in their idolatry. They still have 450 Baal prophets. They have succumbed to that. Their king has led them into sin. They have participated. Nothing has changed in their life, okay? And God says, I'm going to finally send rain. God takes the initiative. God's the one that's doing the work. It's not because man was beginning to lean towards God and, oh, yeah, more predisposed. And he was, you know, kind of sick and tired of the Baal worship. Not at all. It's three years, there's still a drought, and God's going to show this is not about man, this is about me. Also, we have to encounter this other huge problem. Elijah wants to make sure that these people of Israel know that it is not due to his celebrity-like personality. Oh, we love celebrities here in America, and it's tempting, even in a small pond like Loud, New Hampshire, to have celebrities, celebrity preachers. Just get all about them. It's about what they do. We can't wait for them to speak and how they say it and how they frame it. Well, guess what? Elijah kind of outshines all of us celebrity preachers if we are such because he actually did amazing things, remarkable things. Raised a woman's son back to life. Caused flour and oil to last through a whole famine. Right? He does those things. And they could be tempted in years later to think, you know, the reason why all this happened is because of Elijah. Because I think the human heart, no matter what generation you're in, it's still the same. And here's how the human heart works. See if it fits. It is so much easier in our skepticism to explain things away in human terms. You know, here's how it goes. Salvation stories. You know, my parents used to bring me to church. That was kind of when I had that God moment. I was drug here. All right? People that come to our church are amazed at the number of young people we have, the teenagers that come. If you come here on Sunday night, not tonight, it's canceled. Okay, but if you come on a different night, you're going to see 40 to 50 young people here. And people say, your church only has 200 people. And there's like 50 young people that attend, 40 to 50 that come regularly. That's kind of out of proportion. You know what? I bet you if I was to come, I'd find out why. It's because of all the pretty girls that come. Yeah, I mean, why do guys go to youth group? Certainly it's not for Jesus. Right? I mean, it's because, you know, right. I don't need to go on, right? But that's how we explain that away. Or you say this. You know, the first time I got serious about God was when I left home. I was just lonely. I was kind of searching. Kind of lost my way a little bit. And so I just thought, why not give God a try? Others of us would say, you know what? I joined the military, went off to war, foxhole conversion. I was scared. Or in others of us, we have the fire come down and we realize that we just got issued divorce papers. Or lightning struck because our spouse passed away. 
And we want to explain where we kind of got interested in God and where God met with us and it was a voice and it was a warm feeling and it was a light and it was a this. And we just want to kind of explain all that away with just what we were going through personally. It was the burrito I ate. And so Elijah is very anxious that the people of Israel would know that what they're about to experience is not by human effort or gimmicks. It's really important. He wants Israel to know that God alone acts to bring you back. Did you catch that? God alone acts to bring your heart back. That's what we're going to learn this morning. And I'm going to say it this a third way so you'll actually catch it. Because some of you are like, oh, I heard it the first time. And the second time, I'm thinking about writing it down. Here's the third time, right? God alone acts from a disadvantage for the advantage of your heart. You see, this whole contest that's going to happen here in 1 Kings 18, God intentionally sets it up where he is disadvantaged so that there is resounding proof the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God, and that he alone draws your hearts back. God alone acts to draw your heart back from a disadvantage. Look at the contest. Here it is. First uh, verses, chapter uh, 18, verses 17 through 19. When Ahab saw Elijah... Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. The time had finally come for the Lord to show that the Lord God has no rivals. There are no gods but God, right? And Elijah confronts Ahab with this contest to make it plain once and for all how things really are. And let's look at the conditions of the contest. That's kind of what we're going to see next. All the things that God does to make it harder in order to give Baal every advantage. So at the end of the day, you know that God alone acts to bring your heart back. Right? He, he's not afraid of being disadvantaged because he's going to win. Look at 1 Kings 18, 20. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and he gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Notice the location of this contest is on a mountain called Mount Carmel, which is a sacred site of Baal worshipers. So here it is. God alone acts from a disadvantage for our hearts. By giving away home court. Right? He says, take it. We'll do it on your turf. I ain't afraid of an away game. We'll do it where your people are from. Sure. Let's go. You have the location. Then second, we're going to see here that God says you can have the numbers. Look at verse 22. Then Elijah says to the people, I, and even I only am left, a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450. Can you imagine actually being Elijah? 450 to 1. I mean, think about a boxing ring. You got one corner, one guy. And then you got like spread out, like across, I mean, squished in there. 450 guys. And God says, I alone act from a numerical disadvantage. I mean, that should remind you of the Exodus. That should remind you of Noah and his family. That should remind you of Gideon. Just go ahead and bring it down to 300 till we end the book of Judges with Samson. Just one. Ultimately pointing to Christ. Just one. Against the world. God says, bring it. 
Numerical disadvantage means nothing. I can turn your hearts back. Then there is the bull, verse 23. Let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces. Lay it on the wood. Put fire, no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull. And lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. So what does Elijah do here? He gives him first pick. You know, recess games. You got first pick. Pick the ball. I mean, you know, you got your favorite ball. Go for it. You know, got your favorite bull. You can pick that one. No worries. Then God alone acts from a disadvantage by giving them the choice of weapon. Verse 24, here's the conditions. You call upon the name of your God. I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And here it is, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Well, what is going on here, this choice of weapon? The contest is who can make their God send fire down? Guess what? Baal is known as the storm god. If there is anything that he should be able to do, it is to start a fire. Lightning bolt is in his wheelhouse. This would be like me challenging Daryl Trinka in the back, all the way back there, to a software code writing competition. It's in his wheelhouse. I'm going to lose. It is like challenging Jason Ludwig to a chicken coop building competition. I might be able to paint it, but that's after it's built, all right? I mean, that's just Carol Ann Stevens. Hey, Carol Ann, you want to do a little accounting contest? Let's go. I'm going to lose. It would be like asking Dana Fisher to a contest of rebuilding an engine. Faith Amy, help me out here, okay? I'm still wondering why my 07 Corolla has a Cadillac converter. (laughs) When does it finally turn into a Cadillac? Gee, I mean, it's... Just ask. Anyways, this is their wheelhouse. They know what those things do. I'm still in there looking for blinker fluid, right? I mean, that, that's, that's how long it would take. All right. Anyways, the prophets of Baal, not only do they get the weapon of choice, notice that they get to go first, and they also have longer. Look at verse 26. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of the Baal from morning until noon. Now, if Baal would have answered, the contest would have been over. He gets to go first. They have from morning till noon. Then look at verse 29. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. I mean, they went way past their time. So here's God making this context, this contest harder and harder, all to prove the Lord, he is God. They have the home field advantage, the numerical advantage, the weapon of choice, the first pick, the first attempt, and yet what happens? Look with me at verse 29. And as midday passed, they raved on to the time of the offering of the oblation. There was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Nothing happened, no lightning, no fire, no one answered. And here's the point. Behold the gods of this world. Faith family, if you're new to church and you're our guest, we're glad you're here. If you're a non-Christian, we're glad you're here. And sometimes non-Christians come in with this idea that what really matters as you look at our lives and you see who we want to be is that what really matters is that we're sincere. And while sincere is what we want to be, that is true. It's not enough. Because you can be sincere in your worship as they were and still be sincerely wrong. 
So even if you believe with all of this energy and all of this commotion that they do, and you put your heart and your soul into it, just because you are sincere of a false god does not make him the true god. And so sincerity is important for you to see our lives that we're not hypocrites. We want you to see that. But it's more important the object and that you can't invent a false reality. I was listening this week with Gracie that you cannot manifest a God of your making. That if you just kind of picture it and make it and think about your future, that positive thinking stuff, that you can just kind of turn into this God who you want. No. What the Bible says here is that you can be as sincere as you want, but false worship of a false God is idolatry. And so there's all of this setup, right? All of this build up, all of this build up, all of this build up, all so that Elijah can say in verse 30, hey, come near me. Look at verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. Why does he say that? He wants them to know, right? Because for the first time ever, the Baal worshipers with 450 people in all of Israel around, they finally couldn't slip fire in ahead of time. You know, they couldn't get that thing cooking when nobody was like, they were all there, and so everyone had to see it, so they knew, oh, we're stuck. And so I'd like to say, I want you to see there's no hokey pokey going on around here. There's no sleight of hand. And so he says, we're going to go to Mount Carmel. You can have 450 to 1. Not only is this a fire-making competition, but now look with me at verses 32 through 35. Elijah, with the stones, he built an altar. In the name of the Lord, he made a trench about the altar as great as it would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order. He cut the bull in pieces. He laid it on the wood. And then he said this, fill four jars with water and put it on the burnt offering on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Now, if you're going to be in a fire-making contest... Would you prefer a soggy bowl or a dry bowl? Dry. Okay. Would you prefer soaked wood or dry wood? This is good for us in New England in winter. As you start your fires in the morning, do you want soggy, wet, unseasoned wood? No, it's not going to help anything. And so God's saying this. You want to have a competition? I'll play with one hand tied behind my back. It'd be like me walking up to Brad and saying, hey, let's play soccer, man. I'll, I'll just play with my left foot. You know, i got to entice Brad to want to play with me. Or it's like, like you know, going up to Gracie and saying, hey, Grace, let's, let's, let's race on our skis. Don't worry. I'll, I'll ski backwards. Just to give you a chance. <laughs> you know, like just that kind of dad jab. Brad, love you, man. That was just a little, little fun jab for you. Okay, but that's the idea. It's like Dennis Lohman telling me, hey, you want to play tennis, Josh? I'll play with just my left hand. True story. One time we actually did ask Dennis to play tennis with us. And he said, okay, you and Pastor Jeff versus me. This is two on one. We got to use the doubles court against Dennis. He was a single guy. And we got to hit all the way to the furthest boundaries. While Dennis against two guys said, I'll play singles against you. He had us running. <laughs> we lost bad. That's what God's doing here, okay? Like, I don't mind being at a disadvantage because I'm still going to win. I think Dennis knew that and making the pastor run over there and hitting over there. <laughs> we hit each other, fell down. Oh, man. We only did that once. Can you imagine why? <laughs> um, right. So, 
Here's what happens in verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. That's the point of the story. That God alone is God. That he rules the rain. He rules fire. He rules flesh, wood, and rocks. But the point of the whole story is the response in verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What's the point? That God rules hearts. He was the one that was going to turn their hearts back to them. The fire was only a way to ultimately win their hearts back. And so this morning, we need to ask some questions for application of how does that story in the past relate to today? And I would argue that today, that the odds are just as much stacked against God today as they were at Mount Carmel. Right? When we ask the modern person, and I'm asking you, church, Elijah's question, if you flip back in your Bible to 1 Kings 18, verse 21, here's the question that we have to ask everyone in this room, and the world, ultimately. Elijah comes up, and he confronts you in the words of Elijah. I want you to hear this question to you, as if it's written to you. How long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Allow me to confront you with the exact same choice. There are only two choices in life, God or idolatry. How long will you go limping? And the word there is really hobbled, crippled. The idea is that your whole approach to life is going to be lame. You might think, if you're here as a non-Christian, that you're at this great advantage because you're more tolerant and more open-minded than those troublers of America, those Christians who actually say there's a contest between the true God and the false God. The world today says, why have a contest? I mean, can't we just find out what we have in common? Can't we just agree on those things and be more tolerant with each other and get along? I mean, you know, all religions are true and get you to God. Well, we're definitely the troublers of of America, and God is certainly at a disadvantage because we think that the modern enlightened person, his whole approach to life is crippled. It's lame because he's halting between two, limping between two opinions. And so the challenge for us is stop being indecisive. The stakes are high. Each of us will have to take a side. And here's how you take a side. First of all, God says, worship me exclusively. That's our first application. God wants your worship exclusively. So here it is, worship God exclusively. You can't be neutral. You know, the people tried it. Look at 1 Kings 18.21. After Elijah asked the question, how long you go limping into opinions, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal didn't follow him, well, what did the people do? The people did not answer him a word. They were as silent as the false gods were. They didn't want to commit. They wanted to live, you know, kind of straddling a fence. I don't know if you've ever tried that, but not very comfortable. And yet they're thinking here that they can just choose both sides. And so God sets himself up at a disadvantage because he says, worship me exclusively. And you say that today, and to the modern person, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you hear that, worship God exclusively, I wonder how that sounds to you. 
if, if this represents you, great. If you can represent yourself better than me, then come talk to me after the service. I'm going to give it an attempt. This is how I think I would hear it. When I hear worship God exclusively, and if I was not a Christian, here's how I'd hear it. Who in the world would want to worship a jealous God? Exclusive? I mean, like, what is he like a old, vain woman who just still needs to be told that she's beautiful? Doesn't that seem kind of just off-putting? Listen to how Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, put it. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character, here's what he says, in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. An atheist has read the Bible, and he says, how I read the Old Testament is that the God of the Old Testament is the most unpleasant character in fiction. Jealous and proud of it. Is that true? Is that hard to hear? That God demands your exclusive worship makes me sound like he's kind of jealous. Well, it's hard for us to understand if we think jealousy and envy are the same thing. We use those terms as synonyms, the interchangeable. Right? So let me just try to practice with you. I could be envious of your looks. I could be envious of your bank account. I could be envious of your uh, prestige and your reputation and your job in life. And I would say, I'm jealous because I want what you have. Yeah, that works sometimes. But jealousy can also be a real positive thing. It can be a good thing in the context of a committed relationship. I think you know this as parents. We'll start with you parents first. You have a kid that's going off the rails. Lying to you. Disobeying. Doesn't seem to care. Doesn't mind getting caught. Kind of just doing it in your face. Do you shrug your shoulders and just kind of sit there at the dinner table just kind of indifferent? No. You, you get angry. Why do you get angry? It is because you have a jealous love for them. You see them turning from you. And because you brought them into this world and you love them, you know what's best for them. As they are beginning to run from you, you are jealously saying, oh, no, you don't. You better get back here. And so your anger is going to actually hatred would be indifference, right? Hatred would just be like, do what you want. That would break a kid. But it is the jealous anger that says, no, come back here. You're mine. I don't want you to destroy yourself and self-destruct. Parents get it wrong, I'm sure, at times. And kids, just know that even if parents get it 90% wrong, please know that parents have at least 10% right all the time. <laughs> Give them that. But you can also relate it to a marriage, right? You see a spouse that's becoming cold to you, indifferent, and you're just sensing that things aren't the same, that you don't have their heart. Do you just see a spouse just say, okay, um, so like I'll sleep in the bed this night and you have it this night or we'll just be roommate. I mean, do you, do you see that happening? No. You get provoked and you say, I don't know what's going on here, but we're, we're going to do something because this ain't going to last. Because you've made a commitment. And so now think about jealousy that way with God. And the Bible says that God is jealous. He's actually saying something quite incredible. Two things. First, when the Bible says that God is jealous for you, it means that he's not just your king, but that he is committed to you with spousal love. God's jealous for me. He's not just a king. No, he's, he's my spouse. That's why you read the book of Hosea. And God goes and pursues the nation of Israel, even though they've played the prostitute, because he is covenantally committed to them. 
king, but you're the lover of my soul. You're my spouse. He is our bridegroom, church. And we're the bride of Christ. Second, what does that teach you about sin? Oh, man, when we sin, it means that we're just not breaking God's law. I, I kind of have been able to, you know, callous my heart a long time ago to breaking a law. Like, oh, that's a law. That's just made by somebody. And the speed limit doesn't seem to meet with my desires right now. So I'm breaking a law. Whoop-de-doo. Not a good place to be, but I've justified that enough in my 37 years of driving, uh, whatever it is. And uh, But you know what really sin is? It's not breaking God's law. It's breaking God's heart because he's committed to me as a spouse. And so it's not just these arbitrary laws of why is God so strict? It's a straitjacket. No. It's someone who loves me. And every relationship that's good has good rules to maintain the relationship. And so sin is breaking God's heart. So why should you worship God exclusively? What's the uphill battle? Well, God says, yeah, I, I do claim exclusive worship, but I'm exclusively for you. I've bound my heart to you. Our futures are bound up together. And so I have a jealous love inside of me that wants to turn your hearts back to me. And so run to me. Worship God exclusively. Second, shun idols completely. Shun idols completely. I think that would be the point of the story as well. How do you actually know that you're experiencing God, not just manipulation of man? Well, you shun your idols completely. The writer of Hebrews wants you to connect some dots here. Notice that these worshipers of the false gods, they leave limping. Did you notice that in verses 26 through 29? Look at verse 26 with me. Elijah says earlier, how long you go on limping between two opinions? Well, look at verse 26. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered. Oh, here it is. And they limped around the altar that they had made. I hope you're not reading the NIV. The NIV used the word dance. Scratch that. It's the word limp. It's not dancing no matter how cute it is. It's actually limping before God's eyes. And what's the point? Here's the point. Idols abuse their worshipers. You go limping between two opinions between the false God and the true God. Well, guess what happens? As you choose to worship the false God, it will leave you limping in life. You want to know why? Because worshiping a false God requires that you have to be a performer. You have to do your dance steps. you got to put your makeup on. They danced around there. They had to do their routine because they have to impress this God. Compare that with the true God. You don't go to this false God like a child or a friend. Just think about that privilege. If you're worshiping a false god, you've got to impress him. You've got to know your dance steps because you've got to convince him that he needs to answer you. But how does God tell you to come to him, church, as a child? Does a child get the routine right? Does a child come all dressed up and say, Mom and Dad, look, I performed. Now give me. No. Kids can get disciplined and then the next minute say, Dad, can I have? Because they're just kids. Like, they don't have to get themselves dressed up to ask for the moon. And so you have to do everything right to try to get these gods to give you what you want. But really, they're harsh taskmasters. Notice that in verse 29 or uh, 27, they start slashing themselves. 28, they cried aloud, cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Oh my goodness, what's going on here? Right? All this blood gushing out. That even though false gods are no gods, false gods hurt people. Faith family, just wake up and realize that the false gods you're tempted to worship will exact their price. 
Let's just consider a couple random gods that we are tempted to worship. The God of career. You go chase after that God, and you are a career man or a career woman, and you got to have that path, and you are driven, no time for anyone else. Guess what? You're going to pay with your health. You're going to pay spiritually because you can't be here and gather with us. You can't be a part of spiritual growth because it's all about your job. You're going to pay relationally. Or take the false god of sex. You worship sex, you'll pay for it. Broken relationships, health. Those are just two. I think you get the point. False gods will consume your attention, consume your time, consume your money, but ultimately false gods will consume your life. While they pay you no attention, give you no answer, offer you no freedom from guilt, give you no power, don't give you life, but take your life. I mean, it's all here, ramped up, so that you would just be prompted to say, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, I will choose. My heart is warmed. I want him. I will shun all these false idols. I mean, it is normal in the Old Testament system to have to inflict pain on yourself to get God to do what you want. And the gospel offers you a God who inflicted pain on himself to give you life. Where do you have that role reversal? Nowhere. So stop limping. I mean, young people, seriously, as you're considering all the options and temptations of the world, young people don't have Jesus just suit you on Sunday. He needs to suit you on Monday, too. Right? No longer a both-and religion. It's either or. And the Puritans basically told us to go all in by saying this. I love this quote from the Puritans. God will not be served by halves. I'll give you half of my time, half of my money life. I'll keep it there half for me. God will not be served by halves. And maybe it's now time for you to go public with your Christianity. Consider baptism. Say, I'm all in. I'm joining a church. I'm held accountable. I want to live this Christian life. I want to identify as a Christian. Go public. Maybe it's time for you to make up your mind on how God wants you to live. You know a couple areas of your life that you're just not following what the Lord says. It's not that you need to get new Bible studies. Don't outthink your obedience. It's black and white. You're just saying, I don't want to. Stop limping. If Jesus is king, live like it. That's really the challenge here. Shun idols completely. See how they did it here in this passage. Look with me at verses 39 through 40. 39 through 40. And when all... The people saw it. They fell on their faces. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Verse 40. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon. And he slaughtered them there. Is that the wake up call you need? God is dead serious about sin. Oh, that was the Old Testament God. Hebrews 13.8. He is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And though we shouldn't do what Elijah did to the false prophets, it is good analogy for how severe we are to be with sin. How severe are you to be with sin? Well, individually, here's the application. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Deal with it. Severe. 
Christ says, pluck out the eye, cut off the hand. I mean, it is take severe measure to do this. Don't dilly around. Don't toy with this God. Corporately, I think there is an application close to what's happening here. God's word does not tell us that we should execute somebody in church for sin. Good news. I get to live. <laughs> I'd start with me. <laughs> um, I'm a sinner. God doesn't call us to execute people, but God's church, in order to stay pure, does have the right to excommunicate people. That's something that we just have to be aware of. That's part of church life, and it probably requires a longer sermon on a different day. But read 1 Corinthians 5. There is a part of kind of cutting out the leaven. So, so far, just review where we've been. What we've said so far is our application is worship God exclusively and shun idols completely. Here's how you can think about it just in two simple words. In one sense, we dealt with jealousy and purity. Those are the two words that we talked about so far. Jealousy, because God is a jealous God, and purity from idols. Right? God's jealous, therefore we should keep ourselves pure from idols. And what's interesting is that whenever you read the Bible and you see God's jealousy in the face of our idolatry, because we need to have purity, you also see God's fire. Wherever you see jealousy in the Bible, along with idolatry, you also see fire. And we see that in this passage. You also see it in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4 talks about don't make any false idols, don't worship the moon, the stars, any of that stuff. And that's how chapter 4 ends. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Hmm. Idols, jealousy, fire. I think that's how we're going to wrap this sermon up. You have to stop and ask a really important question. Maybe you haven't considered it yet, but I share it with you to really get you thinking about the cross. Why were the people of Israel in Elijah's day, right, who have committed idolatry, now provoking God to jealousy, who is able to send fire, why are they still standing? Are you tracking with me? People committed idolatry, which always provokes God's jealousy, which always ends with fire. Jealousy, idolatry, fire. And yet in this passage, they're still standing. Why? Why didn't fire come down on them? Had they changed? How did the fire not consume them, but actually transform them? Look at where the fire came down. The only reason these people were not consumed by the fire was because of the sacrifice on the altar. Elijah built a sacrifice, built an altar, offered at the right time, in the right way, as acceptable worship to God. And what comes down? Fire to save the people. Fire on an altar, on a sacrifice to save the people. A fire that didn't consume them, but ultimately would transform them to say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. A work of God that would be internal and eternal because fire came down, not on them, but on a sacrifice. And the whole time, they could be thinking, wow, I just looked on the bottom of this hill and there's 450 dead people. We haven't seen that in our lifetime. And they could be thinking, that should be me down there. I worship those bales. Why am I not dead? Well, as we prepare to go to the table, let me put it to you another way from the New Testament. You see, there was another prophet, a final prophet.
prophet, who alone acts to turn our hearts back. And he acted from the greatest disadvantage, death itself. One person against the world and said, I'll take the greatest disadvantage, death. And I can turn your hearts back. Well, how did he do it? Listen to Luke 12, 49. Jesus says this, I came to cast fire on the earth in wood that it were already kindled. That's Jesus. I came to cast fire on the earth in wood that it were already kindled. That's a pretty strong, hard saying, isn't it? What's the next verse? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What's he saying? I have come to bring God's fire of judgment on sin, but I'm going to be baptized and I'm going to be crushed until it is accomplished. Hmm. Well, wasn't Jesus already baptized at that point? Yeah, baptism in the river Jordan. So what baptism is he talking about here? Baptism is a word for full immersion. It's like you're going to get soaked in it. You're drenched. It, it, it's the whole cup that you drink. Oh, don't let, the, I wish this cup would pass from me, but not my will. But I'll drink the whole cup. And so here is Jesus who is offered the cup of God's wrath. He's going to be baptized in the fire of God's wrath. And he's offered, he's allowed to look over the edge and he sees what that wrath entails. The wrath of the sins of the whole world. And he says, I will drink it for you. I'm going to allow God's fire of wrath that should be poured out on sinners to, to come inside of my heart. It will consume me so that I can turn your hearts back. And I'm going to prove that Jesus Christ is God like Thomas. And at the end, what did Thomas say when Christ rose from the dead who took the greatest disadvantage and turned it into an advantage? Thomas said what? My Lord and my God. Because Christ says, I alone can turn your hearts like, worship me. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. Amen. And when you begin to look that Christ took the fire we deserved out of profound love for us, I guarantee you, you will have enough fire in your bones to worship God exclusively and to shun idols completely as long as you look to Christ uniquely. That's all you got to do. It is an internal fire when you begin to see what Christ has done for you. And I think that's the secret to this passage that has just been plaguing me all week. I offer it to you in closing. The rains come, the blessing gets poured out. And then in verse 46, we have this weird closing. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment... And he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. As a Bible student all week long, what have I been thinking? Why in the world does the Bible include a foot race? We had a contest. God rained fire down. And now the chapter's going to end with Elijah, an old man who's been through a drought and a famine, is going to pick up his garment, tuck it in, and go on a run and sprint past a chariot of Ahab. Why? Here's my answer. Now, when you worship idols, you limp. But when you experience the living God and fire comes down and it is an acceptable offering, you get filled with that fire and it transforms you from the inside out and you run. 
You get filled. You get ready to go. And Elijah just beats him in a foot race. Ha! Beats you. Well, I encourage you this morning to run to the table where you will see Christ uniquely. True God died on a cross. Greatest disadvantage in the world that through his death, he actually might inherit sons of God because he can reconcile them through his blood. By absorbing God's wrath, now he can offer us God's peace. So as you come to the table, we want to know how will you be a Christian tomorrow? How do you know? Talk about that over dinner. Please, actually just have that question. Talk to everyone of your kids. How do you know you'll be a Christian tomorrow? And see how revealing their answer is. Because if your answer begins with the word I, I think you got it all wrong. Why am I going to be a Christian tomorrow? It's because God turned my heart to him. You might look at my life and think, Josh, you were in a Christian school, and you were a good kid, and you were a straight-A student, and you were an athlete. Of course God wants somebody like you. No. I was running a hell-bound race by doing good deeds and doing what I wanted to do, and I was disinterested in Jesus. You want to talk about surprised. You know how many kids I know that go to a Christian school that aren't walking with the Lord, that don't want nothing to do with Christ? Almost all. And to this day, right, who should be the most surprised that they're saved? Christians. We sing amazing grace. That's what keeps me, right? 20 years of miracles each day that I'm still a Christian. I don't know I'm going to be a Christian tomorrow. By looking to Christ uniquely. He called me by his grace. He keeps me by his grace. And he did it all. And so rejoice in that. Rejoice that God turns hearts. Not that you thought you were a good person. You should add Jesus. That won't keep you. What will keep your fire hot is knowing that Christ sought you as you were running. Secured you. Worked in your affections. Made you want him. Kept you. Saved you. Glorified you. That's how you keep running. So let's run to the table. Men, come on forward.